I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. A quick note before we get into today's episode. Sayer and I are working on growing the show to make it a better and better product for all listeners. And one way we're doing that is through Patreon. War Stories patrons get early access to all episodes, patron-only shows, and some behind-the-scenes access as we plan out future episodes and guests. If interested in supporting us directly, the link to do so is in the episode description, or you can head to our website, warstories.co. And as always, thank you all so, so much for your continued support. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sarah Payne War Stories, J- joined today by James Cosgrove. James, thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan, so I'm kind of a fanboy right now. So. Oh, cool. I like that. I, uh, <laughs> well, you dabble in a lot of stuff, and we were hoping to talk to you a little bit about that we don't really get into, not intentionally, but I was, I kind of had grand aspirations to spend more time talking about World War One, and then creep back a little further and then a little further. And we just haven't kind of get stuck in, in, I don't know, I speak for myself, but I kind of like talking to Vietnam veterans. I think that's awesome. Um, Then we start talking about modern conflicts and I get going down those rabbit holes. So anyways, you spend a lot of time talking revolution and civil war, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, yeah, I, I dabble in it. Um, definitely, it's always been an interest ever since I was a kid. And it's it's a lot easier to be interested in it because I can physically go to a site and immerse yourself in that site. You know, World War II, I, I mean, I love all military history, but, you know, I can't just hop in the car and go to a World War II battlefield. You know, I have to, that's a that's a pretty big trip. I can go to a museum and learn some stories mm-hmm. and, you know, see some cool artifacts. But, you know, to my favorite thing is immersing yourself in a battlefield and you can kind of apply it to whatever you've read or whatever documentary you've seen and things like that. So that's what helps me kind of stay interested in that time period. That's what cued me on was like, I think you're, to me, you're one of those pages. that's like, I don't know how you don't have many people watching it. Cause it's like, you're doing like, I don't understand that because it's project past and you're on TikTok and YouTube and you're like hands-on yeah, the real place like revolutionary. And I don't know, maybe revolutionary war stuff is an interest as as a sexy topic. I, I don't know. To me, it is, though. Like I like I'm probably not big on like civil war. I'm just kind of neutral on, I mm. guess, for, for whatever reason. I don't know why. Yeah. But revolutionary war, man, growing up, all of the Well, the I don't know if you want to call them myths, but the stories of that yeah. time frame, man, that was just huge inspiration for me growing up. And so to see, and, but I've never been to any of the sites myself though. I've been to zero. Mm-hmm. And so to have a person who spends like their personal time because they're such a, so enjoyed, they, they get joy out of being there and exploring it and sharing it. I just think it's awesome. And it's like, um, well, it's well done too. It's not just, you know, well, we're just doing you. webcams. It's, here, that's been you know? a, it's been a huge challenge. You know, when you first start, I mean, you guys know as content creators, when you first start, you're like, you don't realize how much you do need, you know, you think you just go to like, for me, I was like, Oh, let's go to a site and talk about it. Then you get there. You're like, I have no idea what I'm going to say. Like I'm holding the camera up in front of me and there's, I don't want to talk in front of people. And it's, uh, it's been a lot. So I feel like I learned something not only from the site itself, but from a creating aspect. Uh, You know, I feel like I get better and better as time goes on. I I'm in a position now where I I can actually feel confident in my editing. 
um, you know, before I didn't even have, I had an old desktop that couldn't physically handle the 4K footage. So it was really laggy and sure. I didn't really have a, a, a proper editing program. I was doing a lot of it on my phone. So it, it's, it's been a challenge. So, you know, just to have people reaching out that want to, you know, talk to me about what I've seen. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool because I didn't uh, ever envision, you know, much less my family following, following me, but all you guys. So it's, it's been pretty cool. I'm learning a ton. I, something that I've never thought of, but has 100% been true for me. I wonder if it's the same there. I have learned more by creating some of this content than anything I've read or watched or whatever, because you start to go down these rabbit holes. Yeah. And like, if you're going to go walk Antietam in your case, mm -hmm. like you got to get buttoned up on it. Um, yeah. You can't read one book and say, I'm going to go walk this battlefield. I'm, I'm sure that you start going down all of these little trails to make sure you've got the right information. And because you don't want to sound like an idiot and, and we all get yeah. stuff wrong. And that's um, really easy for me. <laughs> um, I mean, we it, all get stuff wrong, but it, it's like, it's like this added pressure to really study it in a yeah, good way. And there's a common misconception. Like if you're in the history, people think that, you know, every little intricate detail and that's not the case because history literally gets a day older every day. So like mm. you, even if you're interested in a certain topic, you're, there's no way you're going to know every intricate detail down to, you know, an individual soldier or a story. Like, so I feel like it's intimidating to a, a certain extent, but also it's just like, maybe if I just, maybe if it's my goal to make you aware of a certain site and maybe to give you like a, you know, 10,000 foot view of Antietam, as opposed to, you know, being, you know, all the intricate little stories, you know, which would take months and months to film just one battle. Um, so that's kind of my goal. If I can make you aware of it and, you know, maybe you can go down your own little rabbit hole because everyone has their own interests. You know, you can be interested in the Civil War, but you can have completely different interests than mine. You know, I like, uh, you know, I like the 11th New York Volunteer Infantry. Someone may like the, you know, 26th North Carolina. So they may follow the war differently, I guess. But mm. um, yeah, I find if I try to, you know, take like we're on Antietam, take that, for example, that's the single bloody stay in American history. Uh, it's, it's a pretty important day. Um, you, know, you, you take all those men and how many stories are just in one regiment, you know? So it's like the more rabbit holes you go down, then you go to the site and you feel like you forget half of it because you're trying to remember it. But then when you try to remember it, you're losing certain things. So I try to you know, maybe take a section of the battlefield and maybe learn a couple uh, notable or important stories about that section and then try to tell that story. I feel like, um, you know, in the past I've gone to battlefields and you try to tell, tell it all and then you forget certain uh, facts or topics or, so in Antietam, I did it a little differently. I didn't have enough time to go to the whole battlefield. So I did two important sections or well-known sections and kind of just broke it down into, okay, I'm gonna tell the Irish Brigade at the Bloody Lane. And then I'm going to go to uh, Burnside's bridge and tell the story from the union perspective and how, you know, the bridge was uh, called a fatal funnel. You guys know what that is, you know? So you have these, you know, a couple hundred man regiments being funneled into a tiny bridge with the Confederates on the high ground, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. the story I wanted to tell there, maybe not get, you know, intimate, like with the individuals of the regiments, but that section of the battlefield as a whole. So you, you try to like pick a certain, story and try to tell it as best you can at least that's my goal well so much and so it's it is one of those things and preston's one who's telling me this way back when we started doing this sort of podcast thing just about it's sort of sort of just like various 
inter, uh, history topics. And we're both, I'm kind of like, well, who am I to even know anything? It's like, yeah. well, you don't have to know everything about it. And it is a part of it is a lot of people know nothing about it mm-hmm. who then might be interested. It sends them down their own rabbit hole also. Yeah. And I think that that's, what's cool, especially with, cause again, I'm big on American revolution and like, talk about like never forget 9-11 and stuff well i feel like never forget that we rose up against the king and over you know it's like rebellion is what it started as it you know Mm -hmm. it did not start as strict obeyance of laws american spirit to me is like straight up questioning authority from the beginning for the most part yeah you're an Um, ordinary person and you're facing extraordinary odds you know at the time the british empire was the strongest military force on the earth and you had a bunch of militiamen and farmers blacksmiths you know people that worked in shipyards, you know, banding together and, uh, you know, trying to fight this juggernaut of the British army and Navy. Um, so that's one of my favorite things about the American revolution too, is that perseverance. Um, cause it wasn't going well. We were losing almost every major engagement. You know, we were, how many times was Washington almost captured? You know, he was almost killed by a British sharpshooter. Like we were on the brink the entire war. So just to see that perseverance and, you know, that, that will to, really believe in a cause is pretty cool because, you know, we try to equate that to modern day and we don't really have, you know, we have it pretty well, you know, we're Mm -hmm. established. We have the strongest fighting force in the world. We have the strongest economy. We're, you know, as far as technology and, you know, our comfort of life, I think we're, we're sitting pretty well. So there's not a whole lot um, as far as like a galvanizing, you know, uh, cause, so just to learn from that and see how those ordinary men persevered is pretty cool. But that's, I mean, I can see how you're spending time on the revolution and the civil war, because what you just described applies to both pretty equally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there goes there. It is the question of like, and it's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a lot easier 20 years ago. What does it mean to be an American and stuff? Cause these stories were getting uh, just farther away from them. Times have, you know, you lose your, Genesis stories in a way, just because you get so separated from it. Um, Like I just went to a funeral. Veterans every day. And those stories are getting further and further away. Totally. And think of like an 18 year old. So it's like, I, I just went to a funeral for Jim Peewee Martin. Have you heard of that name? Yeah. He's in date. I'm in, I used to live in Dayton. He lives right by my Mm in-laws. Guy was 101. He's a Tacoa original Mm -hmm. uh, Normandy. Market Garden, Bastogne, liberated a concentration camp, uh, secured the Eagle's Nest. I mean, he did it all. And then came home and got married and built a house in 1946 with his hands. Uh, Was married for 73 years Uh and made it to 101 years old. Died on Uh 9-11. But anyway, there's like, he's like the last, one of the last. And so... Well, for people our age, those are kind of like our grandparents' age. It's, you know, for just a young adult now coming up as a teenager, um, their grandpas were like Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. So it's just a different sort of connection to what World War II was and what it is now. The World War II people had different connections. You know, my grandpa was born in 1919. So that means when he was a kid watching the Veterans Day parades or, yeah, there were Veterans Day parades. Um, it would have been civil war veterans too in those parades. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, so think about, and that was my grandpa. So that's not that long ago either. Um, So history progresses and it's like, to me as a kid growing up, it was so much of an identity 
the for the revolution and all those other prior things and yeah. i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm not saying it's a bad thing it's just i feel like the environment mm-hmm. those stories are getting a little bit older yeah. and the humble beginning. it's not as relevant maybe i don't know if that's the right word or not but that's sort of how i feel about it i guess yeah yeah i, I completely get what you're saying and you take you know something you know we have our humble beginnings the american revolution we can you know, a lot, lot of really cool stories. Um, but, you know, I think the coolest part being an American, we're never satisfied. We're always looking to improve, whether it's, you know, civil rights. Civil rights was a thing that was long overdue, took till the 1960s to finally sort that out. Like that's, that's a significant amount of time, even mm-hmm. women getting the right to vote. Like there's always been something uh, along um, from our ancestors that they had to fight for. And I think that was part of that kind of ingrained in that American spirit. So the, with the, something I'm interested in how you cover this stuff, when it comes to the revolution, like you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings. You can mm-hmm. tell any story from any side, um, British or American. And yeah. I mean, Brits and Americans might go back and forth in a joking manner, mm-hmm. but, but you're not going to get canceled um, by how you yeah. talk about the revolution. But the Civil War is not that way. Super divisive. It's, yeah, super divisive still. Yes. Um, just wondering how you tackle that when you go to some of these battlefields, because... There are incredible stories of individual soldiers on both sides Mm -hmm. um, that are now Americans and might live down the street from you, or, you know, their ancestors live down the street. from you. Um, Yeah. How do you, how do you tackle that? Uh, The biggest thing I try to look at history as objectively as possible. Um, You know, try to keep your feelings out of it. None none of us are perfect. We all have certain biases, but especially a conflict like the American civil war, which, I mean, you can look on any social media platform. There's people refighting the war in the comment section, no matter what platform it is. It's, it's crazy. And, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. So I try to just look at history from an objective standpoint, like, Hey, this is what happened. And this is, you know, I'm just telling you what happened. I'm not trying to spin it a certain way or omit something. Um, that that's, that's, it's difficult at times. Like I said, I'm an American. I identify as an American. My uh, allegiance is to the United States and the Constitution. I in no way support the Confederacy or its ideologies, but like that was an important part of our history that we have to tell just because I don't support it or, you know, X, Y, person X, Y, Z supports it. Like just, you got to tell the story. It's history is meant to be uncomfortable. And if it makes you uncomfortable, that just shows you like how much we've progressed from that point. Have there um, been so, any stories that you've decided not to tell or areas you've decided not to cover that genuinely are a part of history, but it's like, uh, that might stir up the wrong um, emotion. Yeah, it was early on, uh, you know, military history is, it's a little easier cause you're just telling the events of the battle. Um, and usually that, you know, it ends there. There was, um, I'm trying to remember it was the battle of Alusty in Florida, which was the largest civil war battle in Florida. It happened in 1864. It wasn't really, it was a Confederate victory. It didn't really, you know, wasn't significant. The Union was trying to take back Florida, bring it back into Union hands. So they were marching on Tallahassee, um, a small band of Confederate, mostly militia and some uh, forces from South Carolina met them. Um, the regiment 54th Massachusetts, um, which was an all African-American regiment, was among the uh, one of the units that fought there, and there were several other uh, United States colored troops. That's what they were called back then. Um, that's what their regiments were called that fought there. Well, obviously there was, you know, the Confederate Army wasn't really a fan of fighting African-Americans, especially those that escaped slavery. Sure. So after the battle, there was some accounts of uh, Confederate soldiers bayoneting wounded uh, African-American soldiers on the field. 
And it was early on in this journey that I call Project Pass. So I was like, I, I just, I don't want to get political. I know the nature of it. Um, I, so I didn't include that part. I was just trying to tell the battle. Part of me wishes I would have, because that's, again, that I try to approach it objectively. So that's what happened. I should have told it. So that was probably the one thing I did omit, because I felt like it wasn't going to do anything but, you know, cause people to argue in the comment section. And that's taken away from learning from the battle itself. But you know, it can, it can go back and forth. Part of me wishes I would have included it because it was part of the battle. Um, and I don't want to diminish the sacrifices of those soldiers that were bayoneted on the ground. Um, but also part of me was like, well, maybe it's just, you know, with the political divide right now, maybe it's not the best thing. But that's probably the best example I have. I, I mean, I, I've done that too. I Countless topics I want to get into that I know are just, like even just bringing them up, we're going to really start a fight. And yeah. I don't want to do that, but I went to Shiloh. We're like two hours from Shiloh. So I went down there it's on my list. <laughs> yeah, dude, let me know. I'll meet you there. Yeah. Um, that's a really cool one because it's in, it's, it's, it like looks very similar to how it would have during the civil war. It's not mm -hmm. built up. It's kind of sectioned off. Um, so you can really kind of feel what it would have been like walking through the peach orchard um, or, you know, checking out the hornet's nest, like it's thick, it's nasty. Yeah. So it's a cool one. But um, if I remember correctly, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but Nathan Bedford Forrest had a big charge towards the end of that battle mm -hmm. um, or defended his guys as they were, as they were leaving. I think it was. Um, and there's like a, there's a place you go locate that on the map and, and say, this is where that happened. And I didn't do that because I thought Nathan Bedford Forrest is probably most associated now with kind of standing up or early Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, I've got seven or eight other stories I'm telling while I'm here. I just won't do that one. I didn't. I didn't. And yeah. it, it's not, you know, that's not a key piece of history, that little part of the end of the battle by any stretch. But, you know, I wasn't confident enough to. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly how you're feeling. You're like, you know, it's part of history, but is it going to be beneficial to people learning or is it just going to get lost into, you know, the divide that certain people still feel about certain topics? So, yeah, I yeah, fully understand. What would you do, yeah, Sarah? No, it's tricky. Well, no, I was just listening. Actually, I was listening to, just on the drive home, a Tom Hanks interview with the, the armchair expert with Dak Shepard or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking, he kind of brought that up with um, storytelling of, like, it was very progressive for him to do that movie, Philadelphia, which was um, gay and AIDS oh. in the early 90s, yeah. very touchy. And mm -hmm. people didn't want to talk about that stuff either. Yeah. And recognize what was happening. A lot of people were putting their heads in the sand or if they did hear stuff, they'd get angry about it. And um, on the one hand, they had people that were like saying you didn't do enough. Right. You weren't really because they, they weren't doing like love scenes. Right. Mm -hmm. Where they could have easily done that in that opportunity and sort of the storytelling and being real physical with that stuff. Um, but he was like that now it becomes only one side is going to want to watch that too because it's only going to advocate for that one person's side so if you whereas they're trying to get the message across to the whole essentially you're not trying to cover up things but you're trying to have the broadest reach as possible to make the most impact as possible yeah, yeah. and if you ever watched the movie they did do it a very tasteful way and i'm sure it did help set the stage for things that came later just in our popular culture and all that but what i'm saying is it, you can easily take these events into a confederate hate piece very easy to do with the bayonetting and and thing you can easily shit on them all you want and make them look bad and that's all true too yeah. you know th those things are true and 
Um, but at the same time, if you're trying to tell the story as an American story, that's anybody and everybody involved. And like, I would argue it, the nuance is really in the context mm -hmm. of how you present that. Cause it's like, some of the stuff is good to know, but then other, other parts don't really move the needle in whatever the, the theme or the story is like you were talking about Antietam. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll put you on the spot here. Like, what would you say after being there on site, doing your own research? Um, what would you say the sort of the point of Antietam was or is? What's the lesson there? Because let's say, and especially for me, all I know it was, yeah, it's like the bloodiest day um, in the Civil War. And that battle was like, I don't even know the numbers. I know it was huge. And but what was the you know, I get the I feel like I get the lessons at Gettysburg. You know, mm. I understand that one, but contextually, I don't understand Antietam. And there's a lot of stories to tell. But yeah. how would you condense that? You know, um, well, the Army of Northern Virginia, they were at the time, Maryland was a border state, very divided within the state. I think the only reason why it wasn't a Confederate state is because uh, Union troops moved in and kind of kept it in the Union. It was I believe it was a slave state. Um, so in the Confederate mindset, not only were they going to take the heat off of Virginia, uh, they were going to move into Maryland and possibly get a lot of support. Um, I don't think they got as much support as they intended on. Um, that's just from what I know. It could be different in certain spots, but um, they, of course, you know, the North had far more resources. It was untouched. You know, at the time, Virginia was already ravaged by a year and a half of war. So you can imagine what the terrain looks like in and around Richmond. That was a central focus of obviously the Confederate capital, but so once they moved in, there was an engagement at uh, South Mountain, and then they moved to Sharpsburg. Um, and uh, the only reason why the Union knew about the Confederate forces moving into uh, Maryland was Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee's order, uh, Special Order 191, I believe, uh, was a, a Union soldier found it wrapped on uh, around a cigar. Um, and then, of course, hmm. you know, brought it up the chain. So then uh, the Union Army pursued Lee. Um, and then they would end up engaging at uh, Antietam. Um, and at the time, it was a critical moment for the Union because they felt like they finally had the upper hand on the uh, brilliant Robert E. Lee, who was at that time unmatched uh, tactically. He was outperforming the far superior numbers of the Union Army on a regular basis, him and his very capable staff. Um, so it was one of those where, I guess, it was a draw because no one held the field at the end of the day. They both were pretty much where they started. Um, but it was, a, I guess, a moral victory um, for the Union because they finally held the field battling Robert E. Lee. And um, they, uh, they took out a, a huge section of his army. His army would never be the same. And those were numbers that the Confederacy couldn't replace. Mm -hmm. So I guess the point of it was, was to drive them out of Union-held territory. Um, and Robert E. Lee's focus was take the pressure off Virginia, maybe get some more recruiting numbers in Maryland, which was supposed to be uh, kind of one of those states that was 50-50. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he ended up uh, losing a, a large portion of his army. Um, now, they did take uh, Harper's Ferry, um, which probably allowed the Union to not drive the Confederates from the field, because uh, just as they were doing so, uh, reinforcements from Harper's Ferry uh, Confederate reinforcements kind of reinforced Lee's army, um, and they, they both held the field. Um, but it was, you know, like, like we said, it was strategically a draw. They both held the field at the end of the day, but I feel like morally it was a victory for the Union, and which 
this moment Lincoln used as to announce the Emancipation Proclamation, which would allow not only free uh, enslaved people in the Southern colonies, um, but it would allow them to join the Union Army and begin fighting for the same cause. So it kind of started shifting. You know, the war was about slavery in the beginning more. It was about unite, keeping the Union united more, more so than slavery. Um, you know, slavery was an economic uh, and political issue at the time, but you know, as the war progressed, it kind of, it kind of evolved into that moral, um, that moral problem of slavery. So I think the Antietam was kind of that the jumping point for that. That's an interesting point. I, I, this is a conversation I want to have. Um, yeah. But the whole con- I feel like over time we really simplify history, and one of the things we do to, to makes it easier to understand <clears throat> because this stuff's so dang complicated. Um, to everybody, even experts, it's really complicated. But the Civil War, I feel like as I'm going through school, you're taught that the Civil War was fought to end slavery. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like if, if we're really particular here, that wasn't the case. The Civil War helped to end slavery. It became a point of division during the Civil mm-hmm. War. But in my opinion, at least, to say that this war was fought over slavery kind of misrepresents that. What do you Yeah. It was more of, you know, slavery was an issue, but like I said, it was, I think it was more of a political and economic issue. You know, the South, you know, you always hear the term like states' rights. Well, one of those states' rights is the South wanted to expand and bring their slaves where they, where they saw fit. Sure. And the federal government wasn't allowing that. So that was one of the uh, rights that they were, that was a big disagreement. Um, and then, you know, as the war progressed, you know, you had the growing abolitionist movement in the 1850s and early 1860s that finally started becoming big enough to where I feel like that became, uh, you know, a rallying cry for the union, you know, like Lincoln saw this was an opportunity to, uh, you know, not only keep the union united after the war, but free the enslaved people in the southern states. Um, so kind of, I guess it kind of evolved from like a, a economic issue into like a moral issue. And people fight wars for all sorts of different reasons, right? So to be fair, I'm sure there were people on the Union side that signed up in order to stop slavery. And I'm sure mm-hmm. there were people on the Confederate side that signed up because they wanted to continue um, to, to have slavery. So I'm, I'm sure for yeah. some people that was the cause, just like for others, it was patriotism or a paycheck or adventure mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, it's important to acknowledge where there's Confederate soldiers in the Confederate Army that didn't own slaves and that were truly just fighting because they wanted an independent South. Absolutely. Just like I'm sure there was Northern soldiers that either owned slaves or were for slavery. It's important to recognize oh, those things. Good call. Um, you know, like I said, try to approach it objectively as possible. So, you know, when the Southern states succeeded, uh, you know, they wrote, they had secession documents. And a lot of the secession documents pointed towards slavery being a focal issue. It's in black and white. I mean, you, you can spin it however you want, but it's literally in black and white. So it's a, it's a part of it. It's a big part. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. 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 So it's like I said, I, I feel like it was more of an economic and uh, political issue. And then as the war progressed, uh, it, it kind of evolved into a, a moral issue, which, you know, as much as I love Washington as a political figure, I really want to sit down and have a talk with them. Like, Hey, like what was, you know, you, you had slaves and, you know, privately you, grew to become against slavery, but publicly you never spoke out about it. So that's, I want to know why, because it, you know, it kind of led up to the problems that we would have, you know, almost a hundred years later in the 1860s. Um, You know, it was already an issue that you had people that 
wanted to take advantage, not have slaves at that time of the American Revolution. And then you had some that were adamant against it and were already threatening succession just after we formed our country. So it was one of those things that was going to happen eventually. Um, but it took the it's, Civil War for it to end. It's that part of it is such a part of our history is that hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. That, All men are created equal when in fact, except these, this group here. Like That's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I had, and I wish I remembered his name cause he'd be great to have on here. He was a history professor. Mm-hmm. He was like a teacher's assistant in college. My freshman year, it was like American history 101. I was taking it. And, um, this guy was from the South. He would show pictures of his family that were Confederates. And he was like mid twenties, mid to late twenties. You know, he's got his family line and they were like sergeants in the Confederacy. This guy personally was a Marine. He served in Iraq and stuff as this, I think he already had his college degree before he went in. I think he was this post nine 11 guy. And he was, he was real personal making jokes about being like, I'm in like Babylon right now. And I'm like, I'm real. I'm looking at this wall right here. That's like 3000 years old, but it's like chipping away. Cause you know, AK rounds are also flicking at it, but yeah. I'm trying to like appreciate the moment of being in Babylon too. At the same time, I'm getting <laughs> shot at, but yeah. um, he explained a context to me that I just never, it's like one of those things kind of like this hypocrisy that's always been in front of us, but you never kind of put it together. Mm-hmm. And he was just saying, Hey, look, that riff from North and South started from the very beginning mm-hmm. because the, the culture were totally different the people that founded the North were Puritans and they basically founded the North for the religious freedom to essentially invoke Sharia law. Mm-hmm. They were sort of the Taliban. They were known as the Taliban in a way in England, they were extreme radicals of violent radicals. I mean, they're the ones who burn witches at the stake and yeah. in England, it's like, you're not allowed to do that. We're a nation of laws. Like you can have religion and stuff, but you can't do that. Stop burning that's, people. that's too far. <laughs> yeah. And so, they're, and so they said, screw you, we're going home, you know, mm-hmm. to the new world. Yeah. And they packed up everybody, grandparents, everybody. They were never going back. They came to New England and they put down brick houses and they stayed. Uh, organic families, organic families, all of that. The South was a get rich quick scheme for anybody and everybody that can pay their way over and, uh, get gold, you know, strike gold, strike rich, essentially with, you know, tobacco and things like that, or sugar cane, whatever it may be. And of course, the people that didn't have the money were the indentured servants, who were the indentured servants, they're just poor uh, males of the lower working class. And this was an opportunity at extreme risk and all of that, of course, to go and probably some adventure, I'm sure that was a part of it, but to go, uh, because they had no, you know, in a, in a land of, lords and things like that where everything is ranked as off a caste system of who your dad is um this was the only way out of that and so you come over here but and you the point was to make your money and then go back to england and now you can say ha you know now i get a you know now i've got money and now you have to call me a lord too or whatever maybe you could buy land and actually be a landowner something like that prove your worth let's say Mm -hmm. and that they never went back, you know, they didn't go back, they ended up staying. And when they came here, the point is, it was like 20 males for every one woman. Um, and they built shacks with dirt floors, because it was all supposed to be temporary. And so they ended up staying, but just the, that two sort of facts, the shack, 
with dirt floors, temporary versus the brick buildings and religion as sort of, you know, you've got business as a motivator for one hand, you've got family, tradition, religion sort of right. on the other. Those are different concepts. You know yeah. what I mean? And that actually has nothing to do with slavery. Slavery fits into the economics, yeah. the justification for going there, of course, later. But originally it was just poor white guys doing that job, sort of dying in the fields. And just one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's right in front of my face. But then you start thinking about that context. And then the timeline as things sort of progressed. And mm -hmm. I, would, I really recommend the uh, Dan Carlin has a quasi recent um, episode. It's like five hours on slavery. Um, not just American, but like probably 1500 post 1500 Renaissance yeah. slavery and to present, I guess, or mo but mostly towards Civil War stuff. And, um, you know, learning about like the cotton gin, once that was invented, I guess the South, the South wasn't even like a top exporter of cotton. But then once that happened, we became like globally number one, it went from like, a don't quote me on this, but it's something like $100,000 a year in revenue before the cotton gin to like 15 later, years later, 20 years later, it's like 30 million, just something ridiculous. Yeah. And so they were just making bank on it, and it about money. Um, but anyway, those two cultures over time, you know, they continue to divide and obviously it led to an eventual clash. And to me, the point of all of these stories is the lessons learned of like, to hopefully not have to go through that crap again, regardless of whatever the reason was. Mm -hmm. The fact is Antietam, uh, just the civil war itself. I think that number is like 600,000 Americans died. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, you know, from battle, who knows how many more, you know, from disease and, you know, other things. And it's just, I, I think some of the estimates now are closer to a million, but the really? number, yeah, probably. Yeah. Wow. But I guess that's the number that we have now is in the 600s, which is insane. Cause you think about future conflicts and they don't even come close to that number. It, well, <laughs> And then in a way, I think going back to the timeline, it really is the predecessor to World War I. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of the first, because even like the Napoleonic Wars that came before that, which there were a lot of those, and mm -hmm. the War of 1812, they were pretty minuscule compared to these numbers. Yeah. And then I also think sort of that it almost paves the path towards sort of killing civilians on the battlefield yeah. and, and destroying <laughs> civilian property, because that really yeah. wasn't a thing. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, some people consider World War One the first modern war. A lot of people consider the American Civil War the first modern war. I, I, I think I lean towards more World War One being the first true modern war, but the Civil War laid the groundwork for that. You, know, you had advances in weapons, you know, rifled muskets were standard issue, whereas, you know, years before it was smoothbore, you know, maybe mm -hmm. you something at 50 yards. Now you have a rifle that's accurate up to three, 400 yards, and you're still firing 100 yards apart. You know, you had repeating rifles now. You had rifled artillery that makes, you know, static fortifications obsolete. You know, you had these giant stone fortifications protecting the coast and crucial river crossings. And, you know, those essentially became obsolete because now the attacking force can fire far beyond what the fort can. You know, you have Fort Pulaski, which is in Georgia, just outside of Savannah. And I believe it was in 1862. The Confederates held it and uh, the Union bombarded it for hours and hours. And the, and you know, the fort fell and it was just in complete ruins. You have this giant imposing structure that was rendered useless just by rifling and artillery barrels. Um, you had, you know, ironclad ships, cannonballs were bouncing off of them that changed naval warfare. Mm. 
Mm. Um, what else? You had sea mines, landmines. You had repeating rifles. I mean, it's just sniper rifles. You had uh, a group of Burdan sharpshooters. The Confederates had their own force, um, but you know they were kind of like the first Rangers. You know, they were in green uniforms. They had rubber buttons on their uniforms so they didn't make noise. And their their job was to just skirmish. You know, harass the enemy. You know, so you can't. You know, that's not some American Revolution. You can pockets of. British and American forces doing that in the Seven Years' War, you had Native Americans and pockets of European forces doing that. But that was like, you know, cutting edge. You're giving them certain rifles. You're giving them certain uniforms. Like, I don't know, it just laid the groundwork. And, you know, it's telegraphs. You know, you can communicate with generals in the field and not be there. You know, oh, that's a big one. I forgot about that. Yeah. Moving troops by railway. I mean, it just goes on and on. It, it laid the groundwork for for sure. When, when it comes to the Civil War, what's the thing that you think should get more attention or kind of has you like obsessed with the, you know, the thing that's not in the middle school history books, but the more you learn, you're like, Oh my God, this thing. Um, for me, I really like learning about individual regiments because, you know, think about when, you know, call to arms and you have a regiment was formed from numerous companies. That's not something that's new. But a lot of those companies were from the same towns, same counties, you know, two or three counties make a company. So it's like those companies that form those regiments, they take on their own identity. I think that's like one of the coolest things, whether it's especially early on in the war, you had different uniforms. Um, you know, they had like, uh, for instance, my favorite regiment, the 11th New York Volunteer Infantry. Um, their contribution was minimal. They were only I think they disbanded in 1863, I believe. Um, but they were formed in New York City by, uh, they were predominantly volunteer firemen from various fire companies throughout New York City. And on their uniform, of course, they had some red, they were called the fire swabs, and uh, they wore their fire company uh, patch on their uniform. And then their regimental flag was, you know, axes and ladders and hose around it. So it's like, they took great pride in not only where they came from fighting for the union, but they, you know, took great pride in their profession previously before becoming a soldier. I think that's, uh, it's one of the coolest things. And you have uh, unique regiments in the South as well that take on, you know, their identities of wherever their profession or their communities. I think that's so cool. You don't really get that nowadays. Can you talk a little bit about the, cause this is something I didn't know until relatively recently. And I, I might make mess the term up here, but regular army when it comes to the north regular army versus army of the united states because i always just grouped them all together but they were very like very very different or yeah as far as like in the civil war yeah because there was a very very small regular army contingent yeah correct so at the time yeah at the time i don't remember the exact number but before the war broke out it was a really small standing army and of course when the southern states began succeeding you had soldiers you know leaving their regiments to go fight for whatever state uh, they belong to. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a really small standing army. So then when both sides began calling for volunteers, they were, they were essentially just volunteers. Uh, you know, a lot of them signed 90 day papers, three months, a year. Um, so that formed a large portion of um, both armies. So when you hear like the 11th New York, that it's like a volunteer infantry unit, but you, maybe you hear the first United States uh, regulars, like that's part of the regular army. So, and obviously as the war progressed, uh, especially the union, they had more regular forces involved and less volunteer units, if that makes any sense. So usually when you have like the first New York or the fifth Ohio, or, you know, any regiment that has, you know, or 14th Brooklyn, that's usually like a volunteer force. 
um, that kind was, of, kind that of was like brought into the regular army. Kind of like federal versus state. Kind of, yeah. Bit. So yeah, like modern day National Guard. You know, obviously they all have their unit numbers and stuff. So it's not, you know, you don't have a you know first Florida in the National Guard, but kind of similar. You know, you get federalized, um, and then you have your normal standing army. You know, your whatever your regular forces or regular troops or first United States regulars. Usually, when you see that, that's usually the regular army. So like the 11th New York, they're fighting with guys. They stand that organization up and they're probably fighting with the majority of people that are at least from that general area. Yeah. But if you just go enlist in the army, in the federal army, you're going to be sent out to a unit and fight with guys from all over the place. Yeah. So, okay. you know, you may go wherever your basic training is or, you know, or your camp is at that time. You may, you may be thrown together with people from all over New York as opposed to, you know, people just from New York City. And I think that I don't know if this is like official, but I think the idea was, you know, when you're fighting with your best friend from childhood, how much harder are you going to fight with the guy next to you, as opposed to some guy that you've never met? Um, so I think, you know, having those, I think that's why the Civil War was so, I guess, bloody. Not only you had the technology advancing that was outpacing the tactics, but you had, you know, people that were deeply rooted, uh, you know, whether whatever side they were on, you know, they truly believed in what they were fighting for. And then you know, and now your best friends next to you that you've known from childhood. So I think that there's think all those factors. That's it. I mean, I think that we were talking about, you know, the pro-slavery Confederate and the abolitionist Northerner fighting mm -hmm. for their, these causes mm -hmm. that more than likely both of them weren't really individually impacted from, you know, because most people were not slave owners and most people were not abolitionists. They were just non-vote neutral living their lives doing their own thing you know what i mean yeah. just like today there's many problems in the world and some are engaged but majority of people aren't you know they're mm -hmm. just sort of do i don't think it was any different back then um but i think it's the sort of universality is like well if my neighbor's going he's going all these friends yeah. are going i gotta go. i don't want to miss out on you something. know it's not i don't want to miss out or maybe i don't even want to go but now i feel like i have to go mm -hmm. of course there was a draft and things like that but i think the principle of it generally is just that notion of that sort of duty and I have to do it. So it's just sort of, it's just what's going to happen. And it's just, you got to play your role in time, I guess. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure shame, you know, it was a different time back then too, when everybody sort of had to do it. Cause to think about 600,000 dying or a million, we were a lot smaller as a country. So, I mean, yeah. that's, it's a big number now, but it was a huge number back then and then to think how many people are just involved in the on the individual war effort altogether over the entire campaign or whatever the entire war itself is just it was so impactful for our country and then people raising kids after that i think that that a lot that's going to affect things too from yeah. that war that we're probably still reeling from and yeah it's, it's uh, it was a major major piece of our history that i feel like we need to focus more on as uncomfortable as it may be i mean you know you had first fighting in cities you had civilians being killed like these are you had pictures actually being taken you know i believe the crimean war was the first war photographed but i think the civil war was the first war that was widely photographed you know you can you see the iconic images you know on any google google search and you see the casualties strewn about the fields like those were things that the public had no idea about until they started seeing those images and you know seeing the fighting in the streets for themselves and seeing their you know their neighbor killed or something. It was, it was a major, major piece of our history that shaped us for generations. It's interesting when you look at like paintings 
uh, or drawings from the Civil War even that show casualties, it is mm-hmm. night and day when you see the actual photograph. Oh, how yeah. grisly some of those battlefields are. It's, it's nasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had some of the photographs that were staged, um, spe- specifically Devil's Den area in Gettysburg. Really? Um, yeah, some were staged, um, but they, they were still like eye-opening, you know, where uh, people, the common person didn't see that. Now they're opening their newspaper and possibly seeing an image from a battlefield, you know, 400 miles away. What do you mean by stage? Tangible. Uh, so I forgot the uh, photographer's name, but he would he would drag a certain Confederate casualty um, to certain spots in Devil's Den. And I'm sure you know the iconic image of the mm-hmm. fallen soldier leaning up against a rock with his rifle next to him. Well, that was a stage photograph. Okay, gotcha. That body was moved there. So it's it was I got I'm trying to parse words here, but yeah, it wasn't making the battle look worse than it was. It was just essentially getting the right picture it's not like they were how you want yeah gotcha so that that soldier was killed in that area but brought to it you know a certain point where the photograph would have been i don't know or real maybe i I don't don't know know. i'm kind of i'm kind of mixed on that i mean the the point of it is to show the to to me the big impact of that is is they're actually showing dead soldiers in the battlefield Mm -hmm. whether they're up against a rock or on the ground in a ditch like i don't i don't but yeah well it's war journalism yeah Yeah, i think the point photo journalism photo war journalism i guess because i'm sure they always had maybe correspondence recording battles i would think maybe in the revolutionary war or whatever napoleonic wars i'm not sure this is different with the newspapers Mm -hmm. type aspect you know it's more traditional again i think back to the whole world war one and whatever the new war world war stuff we're into now is what's normal it really starts to in the telegraph that you were talking about it really yeah starts to, to me look more similar than different yeah i mean lincoln had a direct line to his army at all times he was getting yeah. like that's unheard of at that time so we're coming up on an hour here but i want to make sure we get time to, to find out what what's next your last video is about antietam last couple about antietam what's yeah, next in the so, um well i got a baby on the way my wife and i have a baby on the way that's awesome, so that's man. coming Congrats. november awesome. okay. so uh yeah, so I have I have a ton of content to get edited before then in anticipation for taking a little hiatus. So um, I actually just did a poll on my page. Uh, I have content from Manassas, uh, Gettysburg, and a few other small American Revolution sites. And uh, the people have spoken, and they want to see Gettysburg. So I could, that should be. Yeah, I feel like I could guess that. <laughs> yeah, that should be in the works. Um, maybe look around October-ish for that to start coming out. Um, probably like nine or 10 episodes. I only spent about two days there. Um, so I have to go back. I didn't film nearly as much as I wanted to, but I got about nine or 10 episodes. Um, and then after that will be, uh, let's see, depending on when I, I want to do sil- some civil rights stuff. Uh, I live in St. Augustine and there is a huge civil rights history here. Um, uh, more than I could have anticipated, uh, and a couple national, uh, incidents that took place. Um, so I want to, I want to kind of, uh, spend some time on that. Um, and uh, then I'll have a battle of great bridge, which is, which is an American revolution battle, a really small one, uh, really overlooked happened early on in the war. Um, a lot of people refer to as Virginia's bunker Hill. Uh, the Americans were holding a section of a bridge and, um, you know, they held off a far superior British force, um, Fort Monroe, I have in the uh, archives, and then, like I said, Manassas. So I got, I got oh, quite dang. a bit. 
Okay. Yeah. I thought, I thought you were going to say like, I've got to make this one trip you know, in early oh. October and get this stuff done. You've got a, you've got a library you're working through. Yeah. I, I got about 20, 20 episodes banked. So it's a lot of editing. Um, now I do want to get out to Harper's Ferry at some point. That's number one on my list. Um, I want to go back to Gettysburg. I want to finish Antietam and I'd really like to go to Shiloh and uh, maybe get, I always wanted to, obviously this is already being done. You know, I know you went to West Point, you know, you're learning from battles in the past and trying to apply it to real, real world. But I want to do something where, you know, go to Shiloh and I want, you know, we'll talk about what happened there, but you know, I want like someone that served. I want their perspective, especially you guys as officers, you know, what, what, what would you have done differently or would you have done the same or how would this move affect the outcome of the battle? Like, I really want to kind of tie those together and see war game it almost kind of yeah um and just to see how something that happened in the 1860s maybe affects how we do something nowadays um mm. i thought i think that would be really cool i have, I have one more question that i'm going to hand it off to sayer to kind of wrap it up yeah. here but when you're going to all these sites um do, how much do you think about the time of year like these battlefields look very different in december yeah. and january and they do in june and july do you try to line it up with when the battle was fought? Um, so for the most part, I always go when the price is cheapest, <laughs> especially airfare. Um, but I happened to luck out. I got really cheap plane tickets and I visited Antietam a month before it actually happened. So, you know, the weather probably wasn't extremely different. Same right. thing with Gettysburg. I visited a month after the battle happened. So I try to at least get close to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if it doesn't work out the way, I'm, you know, I'm not completely heartbroken, but I feel like, you know, going to Gettysburg in the winter, you're going to get a completely different view of the terrain as it would have looked in the summer, you know, with everything lush and green. Um, so, yeah, I, I try to. We're here in Mur I'm in Murfreesboro, so Stones River. Um, okay. That was a New Year's Day battle, right? Dead of winter. Like, mm. Soldiers were freezing to death. It was that yeah. cold. So, like, when you walk those trails in May, it's like this is not what they saw. Um mm -hmm. You know, they weren't blocked in with vegetation on three sides. The, the leaves were gone. The, the river mm -hmm. was frozen. So, um, yeah, I always think about that. But. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. And I, I wouldn't mind going to Gettysburg with some snow on the ground and just seeing how the terrain is different than what they saw in the summer of 1863. That's fair. I think you definitely, you probably see a lot more of the, you know, elevation differences and things like that. That was one of the things about Pickett's Charge. Uh, that happened on the third day of Gettysburg is, you know, you think of a grand infantry charge, you know, you think of an open field. Well, it's an open field, but it's not perfectly flat. So when I was walking it, you know, you find depressions where you're completely concealed from the union position, which is something that you don't really realize until you're walking the ground. So it's cool things like that, that you get to like, okay, well, hmm. this would have been a place of refuge, at least for, you know, a minute maybe. And then now you're cresting the hill again, being silhouetted and, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see things like that. Cause you don't, Jeez. that's stuff you don't get reading books or watching documentaries. Yeah. I mean, if they've got these, uh, little, uh, mounds to run behind, I mean, now that's like bounding mm -hmm. forward maneuvering more so than how I would define a charge. Right. Cause to your point, I picture charges just cause like a military, it's I up, he, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. I'm up. Yeah. He sees me. I'm down. This a charge is I'm up. <laughs> For a long time <laughs> and i'm up i'm not going down unless he shoots me i guess because i'm up for a, i'm not stopping uh until yeah. i get to their line and crash into them and hopefully he's down and i'm still up at the end of it which mm -hmm. is like totally different than yeah. uh cover concealment type uh maneuver but 
I was going to say, if you're ever interested in the, um, you know, the Native American stuff, the frontiersman, the pioneer yeah. stuff, Daniel Boone, Simon Kenton, like I'm in that area. Tecumseh was born in my hometown. Oh, awesome. And um, so I always grew up with those stories, mm -hmm. Shawnees and everything. And that's War of 1812. So yep. if you're ever interested in that and, you know, what that this area is, there's plenty of stuff around here it, to include also like the mound burial sites that are yeah. um, thousand plus years old, which is part of still, you know, American history in a way. Right. Absolutely. There's one in Georgia, uh, a big burial mound that I got to get to. I want to cover some Native American history. Just there's just so much civil war content. That's kind of what I'm on right now, but yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Always open to anything that I can get to and turn on the camera on. So lots of craziness all yeah, in our yeah. backyards. You know what I mean? Lots of crazy. Yeah. You don't have to go to, to your point. You don't have to go to Europe. You don't have to fly to some random remote Island in the Pacific. Like there's lots of craziness right here. That is mm -hmm. um, still not understood fully at the same time. Yeah. So absolutely. a lot to explore. Oh yeah. Awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Uh, so people can find you under Project Past, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, anywhere else? I'm on Facebook, but Facebook's kind of weird, so I don't really, it's just there. But yeah, YouTube is my main one. Uh, I'm on TikTok now. I jumped on the TikTok train. Yeah, man. It's kind of cool, actually. I was kind of against it for a while, but it's kind of cool. interesting. People consume information there, right? You're yeah, reaching a I totally mean, different audience. How many videos can they consume as opposed to watching a 20 minute video on YouTube? It's, it's cool. So that's been a learning experience, breaking things down into smaller little information. It's kind of hard uh, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it, that, that shows mass. That's why I asked you, that's why I put you on the spot about Antietam because being able to um, concisely state a complex topic is mastery. Yeah. And that's what TikTok well, sort of forces you to do. And that's how we know each other simply because mm -hmm. of that platform. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know. You know, there's so many more details. Like I said, I try to simplify it as best I can because, you know, these battles are so complex. You have 100,000 men in an army. Like, how are you ever going to understand all the movements? So I try to try to simplify it as much as possible. I yeah. like it. We'll Good put job. links. We'll put links to everything in the description here. But James, thanks again, man. And when you get to Shiloh. Let me know. Meet you over there. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. Cool. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And uh appreciate your guys' time. Absolutely. Cool, Take man. care, man. Take I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like what we're doing, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. It helps us get in front of new listeners and provides feedback on how we're doing. We'll see you next time.